We're going we're gonna to jump right in. Uh, the theme for Winter Retreat, we put the, uh, the banner up here, was even if you didn't go, it's okay, but the theme was Upside Down Kingdom. And we talked all about what it looks like to live in God's kingdom on this earth. And the whole series was based out of uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus' sermon on the mount where he begins this three-year public ministry when he's going out proclaiming the kingdom of God. And he, Jesus starts out, and he gives these, the Beatitudes or the blessings. And that's where we started out the winter retreat. And I want to start there again, because I think these, these blessings that Jesus gives are, are so countercultural to not just American culture, but just human nature in general. They're countercultural. And so this really, again, is going to give uh, the basis for everything we're going to talk about in this next series. And this next series is called Living in the Upside Down Kingdom, Living in the Kingdom. And uh, it's going to be based out of the book of Acts. We're going to walk basically verse by verse through the book of Acts. I'll be honest with you, we're going to be in the book of Acts longer than we've been in any book before. We're going to try to walk through the entire book because I think it just looks at what does it look like practically to live in God's kingdom. So if you can throw that slide up there that has the Beatitudes on it, these blessings that Jesus gives. Now, I want you to just think about this for a moment. This is like Jesus. This is Jesus giving his inaugural address to say, this is what it's going to look like to live in my kingdom. Now, can you imagine if Joe Biden got up at his inaugural address and said, this is what it's going to look like to live in my kingdom? And it wouldn't matter who you were, which side of the spectrum you're on, I think we'd all be like, no way, we don't want to live in that kingdom. And this is what Jesus says it looks like to live in his kingdom. And he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I would venture to say, if we were to lay out what we want our life to look like, we would say, blessed are you if every one of those doesn't happen. I mean, that's, that's how I feel. I want to say, blessed, you know, blessed are me when I have peace. Not when I'm a peacemaker, but when I have peace. Blessed are me when I'm not persecuted. Like, we go through all those things, and I'd be like, I'm blessed when those things don't happen. But Jesus says, this is what it looks like to live in my kingdom. And the book of Acts is going to just walk us through what happens to the early church when they live these things out. And we're going to see them do it in really cool ways, and we're also going to see where they really mess up. And we're going to learn from both of those. Now, I know not all of you went to winter retreat, and that's totally okay. The study in the book of Acts is, is applicable to everybody. You didn't have to go to winter retreat to hear this. But I think it really helps come out of winter retreat for us to walk this out. Now, if you didn't go to winter retreat, or if you did, but if, especially if you didn't, I would really encourage you, you can sit down this afternoon and read through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I think it's going to really help you grasp what this is all about. So, to kind of to jump in, I don't know about you, but what I love, I like hearing the stories of people who have lived things out before me. I love hearing those. I love hearing how they did it, how it actually worked out. 
Last night, Wendy and I went and watched the movie The Jesus Revolution. Anybody heard of, the, heard of it coming out? The Jesus Revolution? Yeah. Um, I, think it's, I think it's worth seeing. I think it's cool because I think they show... Uh, it's, the movie's based out of basically the late 60s, early 70s, when a bunch of these hippies were coming to know Jesus, um, and people didn't really know what to do with it. And they show... They show really some of the really awesome side of it. They show some of the complicated side of it and, and how that worked. But I love the movie because it really showed how did it actually look for God's kingdom to be lived out in this movement. That didn't go into depth in everything, but I just so related to the movie, not because I'm a hippie, but because um, I, just re- I related to seeing how it was lived out. And, and, you know, it's great to go to winter retreat. It's great to go to summer camp to hear from God's word, to kind of be like forced to do a quiet time sometimes. Like we love that. Um, to be in, in God's presence, to hear from his word, to be around other believers where we talk about real stuff. All those things are great. And I know you hear this every time when we come back from winter retreat, but it's just true. We need to hear it. Is that we're not meant to live there. Like that's not where we're meant to live. We're meant to, and this is just hard for me as it is for you guys. Like I, I, I just want to be like, can't we just live there? Like it seems so good there. And yet Jesus calls us back into our everyday life, into what's going on, to live in the mess of our own lives, in the mess of other people's lives, and to live in his kingdom right here, right now. Um, we're meant to come back to our normal life and live as followers in his kingdom. Think about this. Moses sees God in a burning bush. That's how God draws him. But the whole point of the burning bush was to send Moses into Egypt to free the Israelites. It wasn't meant to stay there and look at the burning bush the whole time. Moses then meets God on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. He sees just a part of his glory, but the whole point was just to get the Ten Commandments, to go down and give them to the people. Think about John when he's taken into this vision in heaven. He gets this vision of what it looks like to be in heaven. This is in the book of Revelation. He's not meant to stay there. He's meant to come back out to bring it to them. Peter, James, and John, they get to go to the Mount of Transfiguration. That's Mount Hermon. And they, they get there. And what does Peter say? If you remember, it's okay if you don't. Peter's like, Jesus, can't we set up some tents here? We want to stay here. Like, this is so good. And what does Jesus say? Jesus is like, no, you're not meant to live here. You're meant to go back down. And so we're going to go through this book, the book of Acts, to see how it looked like for the early church to live in God's kingdom. It's really a storybook. It's a storybook. It's a book of stories for us to look at, to understand, understand the context. How can they apply to our lives to see what God was doing in the early church? You know, the 12 disciples had spent three and a half years with Jesus, learning from him, seeing him do it. And then they go out and they do it themselves. But then Jesus leaves and he says, now it's time for you to be the leaders of this, to carry this movement on, and for all the other Christians that are around this to live their faith out. You know, it's an, if you read the book of Acts and you really get it, you begin to get, like, it's a really exciting time. It's also a really scary time. What will happen? You know, will they be able to do it? How will their faith be tested and stretched? What will they get to see God do? And I think that's how a lot of you feel coming back from winter retreat. Coming back from any big thing, you're like, what's it now? What? I'm excited. I'm excited to go out and kind of live in God's kingdom, but I'm also kind of scared. I don't really know what it's going to be like. How am I going to be tested? What's the unknowns I'm not going to know about? And you know, although the book of Acts was written 2,000 years ago, 
I believe it has direct implications for our lives because it's about how the Holy Spirit guides and lives through the Christians in God's kingdom. It's all about how the perfect Jesus lives through imperfect Christians to impact the world. Let me say that again. The book of Acts is all about how the, imperf- the perfect Jesus lives through imperfect people to impact the world and to live in his kingdom. That should be encouraging for you. So I got like kind of an interesting question, table share question to start off with, okay? What parts of the Christian life do you want to see kind of lived out to be encouraged? Like what are the things in the Christian, I know, like some of you are like, what? I don't get what that means. I knew that. So I'm going to try to explain it to you. Like for example, sharing your faith. A lot of people are like, I want to share my faith. I don't know what it looks like. Why do you think we do these take five for the causes like two, at least two times a month? Because we want you to see this is how you actually, this is how you can live it out. Imperfectly, this is how you can live it out. So what are the, some of the other things just in the Christian life that you're like, man, I just, I like to hear stories about how that is lived out so that I can get it and be encouraged. Does that make sense? Okay, take a couple minutes to do that. Okay, let me, uh, just, just, just be bold. Like, let me hear some. I'm just kind of interested to hear it. Yeah? Being patient. Yes, that's huge. Because like, I'm like, I don't have patience. Where does that come from? Let me see how other people do it. Yeah, what else? What? What was Drake's? Ooh, don't, not worrying about tomorrow. And Kate? Loving your enemies. Loving your enemies. Yeah, man. You guys are killing it at this table. Yeah. Ah, be, oh, that's, that's really good. Being yourself but with Jesus. So kind of like, Lord, how did you design me? And yet, let me be who you made me to be, but it's with you. Yeah, absolutely. What else? Yeah. Praying for miracles. Wanting to see God do some things. That, yeah, like things that were like, does that happen? And we see God does it. Yeah. Anything else? These are good. Yeah. Ah, the peace of God. Yeah, because I think we're all kind of in search of that peace and seeing where, how do other people have, have peace. That's good. That's good. Well, um, Acts chapter 1 uh, is, we're going to start there. We're going to take one chapter today, and I, I want you to kind of remember this. Like, the Bible wasn't originally written with chapters and verses. Like, I know that seems kind of simple, but it wasn't originally written with chapters and verses. They were actually added in uh, somewhere 1200 AD by a guy named Stephen Langton. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he wanted his readers to easily be able to find chapters and verses. And so overall, chapters and verses are very helpful in the Bible. One, so that we can know where things are easily, know how to memorize them. Uh, but there's, at times, the, the chapters and verses can kind of break up a thought, and it's not always helpful. But generally, they're good because I think there was purpose in how they broke up the chapters and the verses. And I think Acts chapter 1 is one of the great examples of really a chapter just being able to set the tone for what's going to come in the rest of the book. But sometimes I feel like I could speak these words up here and tell you what it's all about. But if there's a video that does it way better, you're going to watch that way better. So we're going we're gonna to check out one portion of the Bible Project video uh, that from Acts chapter 1. It's going to kind of set the tone for that. So... Go ahead and play that video, and we're going to stop it in the middle. Um, so that was just going to give you kind of an introduction to the book of Acts so you get it. Because the whole point is Luke's just starting out, and he goes, he starts in the beginning to say, this book that I, this letter that I wrote before is all about what Jesus taught the disciples. And so now he's saying that to set the purpose to go, moving on, now we're going to see what God continues to do through them. So Uh, Let's kick right off in Acts chapter 1. If you've got your Bible, open up to Acts chapter 1. You can follow along with me. 
um, starting, starting in, in verse 1. So it says in the book, O Theopolis, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now verse 3, this is where we're going to kick off with point number 1. And that is the proof of his resurrection and Jesus' ascension back into heaven. That kind of kicks it all off. He says, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. I, I have to uh, go with Christina. It's just really cool how we're seeing the kingdom of God and living in his kingdom in all these different areas. So one, uh, chapter Acts 1-3, Luke is extremely careful. He is extremely clear to record Jesus was alive after his resurrection. Luke is saying his death wasn't a hoax. Like he didn't act like he died, but he really wasn't dead. He's going, he was dead. He was fully dead. And his resurrection is 100% real. Jesus, it's, he's clear to say Jesus was back after his resurrection for 40 days, giving the final instructions on what it would look like to live in his kingdom on this earth. Now that word proofs, that word proofs there in the Greek, tekmerios, trying to say that correctly. There we go. It occurs only here in the New Testament. This is the only time this Greek word appears here in the New Testament. And what it means is it, it looks at the demonstrable evidence, the overwhelming evidence, in contrast also with evidence provided by witnesses. Also it means infallible proof. Luke is saying there is overwhelming evidence to the resurrection of Jesus. That's how he starts out the book of Acts. And, and this is really important. We could kind of easily gloss over and be like, yeah, that's what the Bible's about. That's what the New Testament is about, that Jesus would resurrect. But Jesus' resurrection is attested to with great certainty, in my opinion, unlike anything else in human history. I believe the records would show the history, the eyewitnesses, unlike anything else in human history, Jesus' resurrection is the most historically accurate thing. And what we're about to see from the 12 apostles and the early Christians in this book of Acts is directly correlated to what they had witnessed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. What we're going to read about what the, what the apostles do and what the early Christians do, the whole reason they do it is because of what they experience in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's why they do what they do. The apostles and the early Christians were being obedient to the Holy Spirit, even to persecution and death. They were being obedient to the Beatitudes, to the blessings that Jesus said it would look like to live in his kingdom that aren't easy. And it wasn't because of what they were hoping for. Let me say this. The reason I say the, the apostles were willing to do what they, what they did and live for Christ, it's not for what they were hoping for, but what they had already seen. There is a lot of people in this world, you can go look up stories of different religions and people that have done really crazy things, even willing to sacrifice themselves to death. But the reason that they were doing that is because of what they were hoping for. I want to make sure you understand this, because some of you, I've heard some of the arguments is like, oh, well, Jesus' apostles, you know, yeah, they were willing to do really hard things. They were willing to be persecuted. Even other Christians are willing to be persecuted. But other people have done that before. But what I will say is the difference between why the early apostles and Christians now are willing to do, live for God obediently, even to persecution and death and just hard times 
is not for what they're hoping for, not for like, oh, if I do this, then this will happen to me in heaven. Oh, if I do this, I will get some blessing on this earth. These guys were doing this because of what they had already seen. That is really important. That's why Luke starts out and says, the resurrection is key. And the resurrection is key in our lives. We might not have seen the resurrection, but we have, if you are a follower of Christ, you have the living Jesus dwelling inside of you that has resurrected. That is crazy big. So the convincing proofs of Jesus' life and resurrection are what move the apostles and early Christians to live out their faith in real ways. Not for what they were hoping for would happen, but for what they had already seen had happened. It impacted them so much, they'd be willing to live it out. I'm going to skip down to verse 9 through 11, because it kind of carries on with this idea of the, the ascension. Verse 9, And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is so key, guys. Jesus leaves this earth alive. He doesn't leave dead. He is alive. And now it's time for the disciples to live it out. Here's what Hebrews 1.3 says. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is Jesus. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, that is, dying on the cross and shedding his blood, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the, author, the, the writer of Hebrews is attesting to exactly what happened, that Jesus ascends from this earth. He is now sitting at the right hand of God, alive and ruling. Jesus resurrects in a physical body and resurrects back to heaven. He's alive. And you know what? This is in the same way for us, that one day we will resurrect in a physical body when we leave this earth to be back in heaven, to live fully in God's future kingdom. And when he will, he, uh, the, what the book of Revelation actually refers back to this in Revelation 1.17, it talks about Jesus coming on the clouds. And in the Old Testament, Zechariah 14.4, it actually uh, it says in the same way that he came, well, Jesus left on the Mount of Olives. And in the Old Testament, it is a prophecy of Jesus ultimately coming back to that Mount of Olives in Jerusalem to come and reign. And so now for us, we take the same purpose that the early Christians had. What is it? It's to make disciples who make disciples. Be disciples who make disciples. That's what he sends his followers out to do. So the convincing proofs of Jesus' resurrection and then his ascension is what moves these early disciples of Christ to live out their faith. Here's a question for you. I'm going to give you about four minutes to talk about. How have you seen Jesus work in and around your life that gives you convincing proofs? Take a minute to talk about that. Okay. All right. If you can turn back up here. So to, to kick off the book of Acts, talk about one, this convincing proofs, the resurrection of Jesus, which is really the, the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the central part of Christianity. I mean, that is the linchpin of Christianity. It all hinges on that. And that's what pushed these early apostles to go out and do what they did because what they had saw, they're like, we're going to go live this out. So the, that's the first thing. The second thing is this, and we're going to jump back up to verse 4, and it's this promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, next week in Acts chapter 2, we're going to talk about what's called Pentecost, which is the coming of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things I want to say real quick as we go through this book of Acts, the, the book of Acts 
uh, it's an interesting book to walk through. And the reason being is because we're going to need to be careful to really be serious about how we understand this book. Because not everything in this book is to be taken as what I would call prescriptive. Some of it is descriptive. It describes what happens. And some of it is prescriptive. Not only does it describe what happens, it tells us what to do. But not everything in this book is a prescription of exactly what to do. And that'll make sense. Even as we look at Acts chapter 2 and Pentecost and some of the other chapters, we got to be really careful to how we kind of understand this book and walk it out. But back to verse 4. It says, While he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. This is those 40 days that Jesus is with them after the resurrection. But he says, But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is a promise that Jesus told them before he ever died on the cross. He says, there's going to become something even greater. It's going to be the Holy Spirit. He's going to live in you. This is the person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, Jesus living in us. This is God himself. Jesus told them, he said, you will be baptized. That means you will be fully immersed with the Holy Spirit. He will come to identify with you, to live in you. The Holy Spirit would come to dwell in them in a way that it never had before. It is the Holy Spirit who will be the one to move and to work through the men and the women of the book of Acts to live in the kingdom of God. I believe that the main character in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit. I think the Holy Spirit is the one that's doing all the work through our lives, and I th- through the book of Acts. And it's in the same way in our lives. When you're directed to do things for the Lord, it's not because you came up with the idea. It's because the Holy Spirit came up with the idea in you. And it aligns with Scripture. And you live it out. And that's what the Holy Spirit is still doing today. Everything we do as followers of Christ that is for God's glory, it begins with the Holy Spirit. So verses 6 through 8 give us the purpose for the Holy Spirit. It says, So when they had come together, this is the disciples, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, these, this two, these two verses, verse 5 and verse 6, where, where verse 5 where Jesus talks about you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and then verse 6 where the disciples, these apostles ask, well, are you going to come back and restore the kingdom of Israel? These two verses are connected. They they, they Again, you, in some your Bible, you'll see like, okay, there's the first part, and then it says the ascension, and then it goes into verse 6. Well, these two thoughts are connected. Why? Because the early apostles, when they heard that Jesus said, my spirit is going to be poured out, they connected this right back to the Old Testament, what they had all known and learned. They knew that in the, in the Old Testament, there was a connection, a direct connection with God's, the outpouring of God's spirit and with the kingdom of Israel being set up again. They saw a direct correlation with these two. If you can go to the slide that says Zechariah uh, 12, 7 through 10, this is, there's multiple examples of this, but this is one of the examples in God's word of this direct correlation between the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of Israel. And I know we're getting into some deep things here today, but you guys can take this. And the Lord, is this Zechariah 12? This is Old Testament, before Jesus ever comes on earth. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, talking about the kingdom of Israel, that the glory of the house of David, one of the greatest Old Testament saints, and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will by 
may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So that the, and he's talking about, again, the kingdom of Israel here. Jerusalem is considered where God's glory would dwell. The temple was there. So that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Now, I think there's one more verse on the screen. And I will pour out on the house of David. Here it is. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. There's so much in this. There's even just the prophecy of Jesus' death here and how they will mourn over his death. But this idea of the pouring out of the Spirit and the kingdom of Israel coming. So when the disciples ask this question, like, well, Jesus, are you going to come back and set up this kingdom? It's kind of like, I think it's kind of like us being like, God, we see the wickedness on this earth. Will you come back and just restore it all? I don't think the disciples at this point are asking, like, come on, God, can't you just overthrow the Romans? I think they're, they're looking beyond that. They're going, we get it, man. You've risen now. But Lord, are you going to come back when your spirit comes? And are you going to restore this perfect kingdom on earth? And here's what Jesus says to them. And I think this very much relates to us. His answer to them is, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. So Jesus is looking back to God, his Father, and saying, it's not your authority to know when the times or seasons. Basically, when is this time going to come? This really this future time of God's perfect kingdom being restored. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus' answer to them is really like, well, here's what it is. You've got a purpose. Your purpose now is to not worry exactly when God's kingdom is going to be restored. You don't need to know the dates. You need to go out and you need to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea to the ends of the earth. He's just saying you need to go out wherever God takes you to be my witnesses of what? My life, my death, and my resurrection. And the Holy Spirit is what's going to carry you out to do that. The apostles' question wasn't wrong. They, did, they correctly interpreted Scripture. But Jesus is saying, it's not for you to know right now or ever when God decides to do this. But here's what I can tell you. There's a plan for you. Go out and be my witnesses in the whole world. And everything you do. See, that doesn't, I love this. I don't think it means you necessarily have to be like, you become a full-time missionary. It can mean that, you know what happens? God wants you to be an accountant. God wants you to be an engineer. And he says, go into your workplace. Be a witness for me. In y'all schools here in Northern Virginia, do you realize the whole world is here? Do you realize when you go to be just a witness in your school in the way that you live, in the way that you talk, do you realize that that then can actually literally go impact the entire world because the nations are in your school? Or when you go to your workplace and you impact someone there and they carry that back to their home country, that is literally taking it to the ends of the earth as you're a witness. So the first thing is in the book of Acts to start out, Jesus says, uh, it's all about my resurrection. Luke says it's all about the resurrection and the ascension. It's real and it's true. That's what carries him out to do that. And then he says, now you're going to go be my witnesses, but the way that you're going to be my witnesses is this Holy Spirit to come. Literally, Jesus living in them. And then we're going to end right here. We're going to end the last part, part three, godly leadership being chosen. So in verses 12 through 14, it says, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. This is when, where Jesus ascended, Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. 
When I first read that, I was like, a Sabbath day's journey. You can walk a long time in a Sunday. That must be really far. But then I remember, I'm like, oh, I've actually been to Israel. You literally, when you up on the Mount of Olives, you can see Jerusalem. I walked from the Mount of Olives down into Jerusalem. And the reason it says a Sabbath day's walk is because on the Sabbath day, you could only walk like 3,000 yards or something like that. That's how specific they got. Because you, if you worked any, walked any further than that, uh, you were disobeying the, the rules, the Old Testament, some of the Old Testament rules and some of the laws the Pharisees has made. And so it says it was Sabbath journeys away. When they had entered, they went to this upper room where they were staying. Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. There's one important guy missing there. That would be Judas Iscariot. Big reason he's not there. He's the one that betrayed Jesus ultimately feel sorry for it. And it says this, and all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So they come back. What do they do right when they start? They start praying. They're like, Lord, help us understand. What do we need to do here? We need your wisdom. They do exactly what he says. They go back to Jerusalem. They're waiting for this Holy Spirit to come and they're praying. And there's a couple of things that Luke just sort of says here that are really nonchalantly. One, he's like, oh yeah, Jesus' mother was there. Like, this is the mother that just watched her son just 40 days ago be crucified on a cross. And now she's like, I'm, follow- I'm now part of this kingdom. I'm following. The other thing he says there is he says, and Jesus' brothers were there. Now, if you go back, you can write this down. You can write John 7, 5 down. In John 7, 5, it clearly says, Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. So even Jesus' own brothers, by his life, death, and resurrection, ultimately the resurrection, realized how true and real he was. So now they're part of the kingdom. They're part of the movement. They're following. So they go back to this room and they're praying. And this is what it says in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers in the company of persons, was an all in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now I want to stop here and say one thing here. I think it's really important that Peter shows he has this high view of Scripture. He's already looking back to the Old Testament to say, where do we get our wisdom from? We get it from the beginning. You know, we talked at at the winter retreat. If you go through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. I came to fulfill it. And that's what these early apostles are seeing. They're seeing that Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament law. So we don't throw the Old Testament out now that Jesus has come. It's the foundation It's where we know God's redemptive plan, what he's been doing all through history. Old Testament is key. So he says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before him by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. It says, for he was, verse 17, for he was numbered among us and was allotted in share in this ministry. So he's saying he was was a really important part of this ministry. He was the one that God chose. And says, now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. I'm like, Luke, you are a physician. You had to give us all the details. Uh, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Ekeldama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Now, Luke is referring back to Psalms 69.25 and Psalm 109.8. Well, Peter is, Peter is speaking from those, and Luke writes them down. So this, these verses, if you go look at, if we look at Psalm 69.25 uh, and Psalm 109.8 that's in Acts, these verses don't specifically say Judas Iscariot. 
But the Old Testament, when it would talk about the coming Messiah in the Psalms, it would speak about Jesus as this divine king. Therefore, the Psalms that speak of the coming Messiah, they also speak of the enemies of the king. So Peter connects Judas with the enemies in the Psalms. And so they, they decide, you know what? We've got to replace Judas. There needs to be one more to make this 12. Let another take his office. Peter takes that very seriously and says, we need to find another. And says, so one of them, one of the men who would accompany us during all the, th- this is the qualifications that they give for who are we going to find to accompany us to make this complete. So one of them who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from, from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And so they, they, they do two things here. They say, one, he needs to have been with us all the way from when Jesus was baptized by John all the way now until the ascension. They say we need an eyewitness because that's what all of them were. And so it says, then they put forward two guys, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice. I'm like, this guy has lots of names, lots of nicknames. And Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the heart of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, casting lots, uh, this is actually the last recorded time in Scripture that they cast lots for something. But when they cast these lots, it's not that uh, they are choosing between a sinful and a good decision. They're taking two decisions that are good. They want to know which one the Lord wants, and they're going to trust him as they cast these lots. And what these casting lots uh, could be would be they would, uh, they would probably write the names of these two men on a stones, and they would place in a container. And when the stones were shaken out of the container, the first stone to fall out would be considered the Lord's choice. And they would trust God in it. And so that's what they did. They cast lots, and they choose Matthias to be this 12th disciple, to now be the one that's kind of going to be the leaders of this early church. The proof in the resurrection of Jesus, the promise of the Holy Spirit to live it out, and now there's this need for godly leadership and followers. And so here's the application from this godly followers, is that the need for godly leadership is important. This is the same in the church today throughout the world. Leadership is key. You know, there's all levels of leadership. Bruce Campbell here is our executive pastor, top leadership. Jim Sup is our teaching pastor. We've got a, a board of elders here that are leadership. Then you, you, start, you start going down uh, to the individual pastors of ministry. You've got leaders that are part of the freshman fellowship that are leaders that are part of small group, student leaders in the small group. Every area of ministry, leadership matters, right? And one of my questions to you is both where does God have you leading and how are you leading even as a follower? Because think about it. It says there was 120 here. Not all of them can be in leadership. Some needed to follow. And so we've got this proof of the resurrection, the Holy Spirit coming, and now the godly leadership to go take it out. And this is really the setting for the books of, book of Acts. And so I'd leave you with this. The proof of the resurrection living God. Guys, the search for truth has been found. You don't need to search anymore. It's found in Jesus. Number two, the living God is living in and through us by the Holy Spirit. The perfect Jesus is working through imperfect people to carry out his kingdom. And ultimately, we see there's this need for godly leadership, and we're going to see how the leadership goes throughout the book of Acts. So I'm going to pray as the worship team comes up here, and we're going to worship. I encourage you to come back here. Come here on Wednesday. We're going to talk about that in small groups and begin applying this kingdom.
in our lives. God, I thank you for your word and your truth that, Lord, you, you set it all for us to know. And so, Lord, I pray that we begin just seeing and, and, and believing in your resurrection, that you literally came back to life. And in the same way that the disciples weren't hoping for something, they were living for what they'd already seen. And God, we are living for what we know is true in your resurrection. And now we have experienced it in our lives. And that God, we are being led by the Holy Spirit in every little decision that we do as we live in this kingdom. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.